You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. As Elliot said, we're starting a new series, a three-part series today. We're going to look at the topic of work, what um, most of us spend the majority of our waking hours doing. A few years ago, uh, I found myself in an elevator with one other guy, which is always an awkward moment. Elevators are kind of weird, but we're sitting in this elevator, and I looked and saw by the floors that we were going to be in that elevator for a little while, so I decided, well, let me strike up a conversation. So I said, how was your day? And um, he responded in a, a response that I've heard often. He said, well, it'd be a whole lot better if it was Friday. Uh, we're all familiar with that sentiment. The phrase that we use to capture this idea is, thank God it's Friday. In fact, there's a, there's a restaurant that's tried to capture that good feeling, TGIF. Uh, you may be aware of this or go to this restaurant. Uh, that, that captures the love that we have for Friday. Now, what's so great about Friday? Well, we all know it's the, the day for most people when the work week is over. And now comes the best part of the week, the weekend, when the week comes to an end, because that's the fun part. That's the me part. We get to do whatever we want. But that is not how God thinks of Fridays, because that's not how God thinks of work. God did not assign us to the rock pile of human labor just to make our weekends even more exciting by comparison. That's not the way God designed Mondays. He didn't design Mondays to be awful and Fridays to be great. Now, I didn't tell my elevator friend all of this because, well, we're in an elevator. So I just nodded my approval and kind of grunted, yep, because I honestly know that feeling. and You probably know that feeling, too. No matter what you do for work, even if you're retired, there is work that you're still doing. And no matter what that is, it's easy to lose sight of the purpose of work in the middle of the routine of work. It's easy to let the difficult people that you encounter at work to kind of make work even worse. It's easy to get out of balance and either work too much or not work diligently enough. It's easy just to plain get tired of work because, well, work is tiring. So our long-standing, challenging relationship with work was really exposed uh, in the wake of the global pandemic. Suddenly, when the pandemic hit, our, all of our work week was radically changed. For some people, uh, their work got even harder and more pressureful. For other people, for most people actually, the work kind of shifted from a place back to home, and there was some additional pressure with that, but there was a lot of advantages to that. And so as our nation began to recover and we began to get back to work, we discovered that there was a large number of people that weren't really all that excited about getting back to work. And so there are two phrases that have emerged over the last uh, two years, about a year and a half, that's describing what's happening in the workforce right now. The first phrase you've probably heard is the great resignation. The great resignation. This is uh, the term that's been used to describe the number of people that have quit their jobs. Back in 2021, last year, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that a little more than 47 million Americans quit their job last year. That is a new record by far. More resignations than ever before. And it doesn't appear just to be an anomaly. It doesn't just appear to be a 2021 thing. In fact, so far this year, the Bureau of Labor reports that on average, 4 million Americans are quitting their jobs every month, which is on track to make 2022 an even greater resignation year than 2021 once. 
Now, there are a lot of good reasons behind uh, quitting a job. Uh, and actually now with a lot more remote uh, options for people to work, there actually is the possibility of quitting your job and getting a, a better job and not even having to move because you can work from home. So there are some numbers that can be put to this, but those who study the labor statistics point to the fact that these reasons don't account for the massive amount of resignations. They're pointing to kind of a, a, a new view that our culture has on work, a low view of work. And that brings me to the second phrase that's been emerging uh, in this post-pandemic work environment, and that is quiet quitting. You may not have heard of quiet quitting, but here's the definition of quiet quitting. It's doing the minimum requirements of one's job and putting in no more time, effort, or enthusiasm than absolutely necessary. Now, this is a massive problem. Companies, both large and small, are trying to figure out how to address the, the reduction in productivity among the workers in the wake of the pandemic. Now, the term may be new. Quiet quitting is kind of a new term, but the practice of quiet quitting is not new. Uh, I got a job one summer uh, during college in a steel mill in Detroit, Michigan, and uh, I remember finding out about the second or third day of work that there was one of the guys that, uh, on the job. He would punch in with us on my shift, and then I didn't see him. And I found out that what he had done is he had found a little space kind of in a storage area in the back of the steel mill, and he had figured out a way to kind of hide it, and he'd put a mattress back there. And so he'd punch in, and then he'd go back to his little hovel, his little hiding place, and he'd take about a four-hour nap. And then we'd see him for lunch, and then he'd work for a little while, and then he'd disappear again. And I didn't know you could do that, and this was the first union shop I'd worked for. I discovered he was a union steward, which meant no one was going to report him, no one was going to touch him. So the idea of showing up and getting a paycheck and not really contributing, that's nothing new. Quiet quitting isn't new. It's just a new term that describes kind of a wave of this that is happening in our country right now. Quiet quitting is harder to track than real quitting. That's because you can't look inside someone's heart. You, you can track some of their productivity, but it's really hard to know when they are struggling with work and when they've just given up on the inside. The Gallup polling organization, of course, has done a lot of work in trying to figure out what's going on with people's behavior. And they publish an annual um, workplace report every year and in the last report that they published, they said their estimate is that only 33% of American workers, employees, are actually fully engaged at work. And they go on to say that their estimate is about half of all American workers right now are in some phase of quiet quitting. At some level, they're, they're really not leaning into their work responsibilities. Now, sociologists have weighed into these two terms, the great resignation and quiet quitting, and they say it represents a fundamental shift in how our culture views work, primarily how the newer people moving into the workforce, how they view work. I heard one sociologist say it this way. She said, boomers and busters lived to work. So that's boomers, that's my generation. Uh, and a little older, busters are the one behind me. And they go on to say that it's millennials and Gen Zers, the one who are more recently in the workforce or who are just entering the workforce, they are different. They are working to live. That's an interesting phrase. And when I first heard that, I thought, well, good for them. That sounds, sounds like a better choice to decide to, 
to not make work the most important thing, to make life the most important thing. But then I started thinking about it, and I realized this sets up a false dichotomy where you're either working or you're living. So if you're working, what does that mean? You're not living. Really? You're not alive? You're just a kind of a zombie going through work? It's a false dichotomy. It's a really low view of work that the only purpose of work is so that we might be able to experience a better and fun life. That is not God's view on work. God gave us work as a gift to be a blessing to us, not just so that we could buy things that we would enjoy or do things that we'd enjoy, but so that the work itself might be something that is good for us and good for our community. The Bible's understanding of work is behind the term that is the title of this message series. It coined the term work ethic. Now, ethics are defined as the moral principles that govern a person's behavior. Morals describe what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad. So what is it about work that makes it moral, that makes it a moral good, not just a necessary evil? It comes from the fact that God himself works. The word work appears first in the Bible, long before sin ever shows up. And it is God who is the one that is working. He is working in the creation of the universe. Here's what we read in Genesis 2.2. By the seventh day, God had finished his work, the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Now, if you read the creation story, it says that God spoke and everything came into being. And so we tend to not think of that as work, but this doesn't say God rested, he finished the magic that he was doing. This is actual work. God was involved in the work of creation. That is why work is good. That is why work is moral. This is also why rest is important and work needs limits. God set the example on that. Work is good, but it has boundaries to it. So if God works, then What could we possibly add to his work by doing work ourselves? I mean, let's just sit back and watch God do what he does. Well, God created us in his image, which means we reflect some of who he is. And work is one of those ways we reflect him. God created us with the capacity and the opportunity to join him in the important work that he is doing in this world. Every single job that is good and that is right is a part of what God is ongoing, his ongoing work in the world. The first job that God assigned is found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, a few verses after it describes God's work of creation. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So did God really need Adam to take care of the Garden of Eden? Well, of course not. God could have done that without Adam. It's probably a bit like you asking your two-year-old to help you wash the car. Do you really need the two-year-old to help you wash the car? No. You could do it better all by yourself. In fact, it's probably going to take you longer, and you might have to kind of work through some parts after your two-year-old does to make sure the job is done right. But the reason you do that as a parent is because you want your child to gain the joy of joining you in something bigger than them and contributing to something bigger than themselves. That's one of the main purposes of work. And God does that. He doesn't just give us makeup work that isn't really important. 
He gives us important work that allows us to participate with what he is doing in this world. In fact, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and the Hebrew word for work here literally means to serve before God. That's what work is. It is a service done in the presence of and for our master, God himself. That is what makes our work noble. We are doing it in service to God. Now, it may be obvious, if you consider what I do for work, that what I'm doing is in service to God, but it may not be as obvious for you that what you do is also in service to God. But the, the word that is, or the work that God used here to describe work first is the job of yard work. That's the first job assignment that we see God giving. He gave it to Adam in the Garden of Eden. And what that means is God doesn't see what I do as any more important for him than what you do. We are all given a role to play. We all have different abilities, different assignments in the larger work of God. In other words, God doesn't just do the work of church and then leave the rest of the work in the world for everyone to do whatever they want. God is the ruler, the master over all work. He doesn't just do church. God does gardening. He does medicine. He does finance. He does maintenance. He does transportation. He does entertainment. He does communication. He does public safety. He does education. On and on and on it goes. If it's good and it benefits society, God does it. And he invites us to join and partner with him in the doing of it. But if we degrade our work just as a means to the end of getting stuff that we want, then we minimize the value of our work. So today, we're going to look at a story that Jesus told, a parable, that is about work. It's a story of, of money, but the point of the story is the work assignment that God gives us. And out of this story, we're going to draw two good reasons for work and one reason why we tend to quit or not work diligently. So this is story time. It's going to take a little while to read through this, so just sit back, relax. Story time from Jesus. So Matthew 25, 14 through 30. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and trusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of the servants, those servants, returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the, uh, the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I've gained two more. The master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out, and I hid your talent in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. 
So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Work is a big deal in God's understanding of our assignment. So reason number one for work is this, the investment dynamic. What I mean by this is we work to bless others. Now work clearly is a blessing to us. You draw income from work that allows you to live somewhere, it allows you to buy food, it allows you to do more than that. So there's no dispute that work has its benefits. What we tend to not see is that the benefits are to go beyond us to be a blessing to other people also. That makes work noble. So in this story, the owner, the master, is God. The servants are the followers. Those are us who decide we want to be servants of God. We want to do our life work in service to him. We're not just serving ourselves. We're not selfish. We want to do this in service to God. So what exactly is a talent? Well, when Jesus told this story, the word talent only meant one thing. It was the weight used to measure large amounts of either gold or silver. It was a monetary term. There were two weights that were used. There was a Jewish talent, which was about 114 pounds. The Roman talent was about twice as much. So the, this is large amounts of money, 200 pounds of gold, not ounces, pounds of gold. That's a tremendous amount of money that's been entrusted to these servants. So the word talent meant money back then. What does the word talent mean now? If I, if I say to you, you have talents, what does that mean? That means you have abilities, you have gifts. Here's Webster's definition, the natural abilities of a person. Those are talents. So why did the meaning change from a monetary amount to the natural abilities of a person? The reason the change in the definition occurred was because of this parable that Jesus told. This is the only reason that word talent now means the gifts and abilities that a person has. It was clear immediately to those who heard this story that Jesus was not giving investment advice. This is not about money, primarily. This is about the intangible gifts, the talents, as we say the word now, that God gives us and what he expects us to do with them, the things, the resources in terms of our abilities that he gives us in life. And it's clear from this story that he doesn't want us just to benefit ourselves. He wants us to invest these. He wants us to put these in the community so that they multiply and grow and benefit many more people. Now, when it comes to money, when you invest money, what do we say about that money? That money goes to work for you. That's what work does. Work unleashes this powerful investment dynamic. It's the dynamic of multiplication. If it's money, $1 can become more than $1. It can become $2. It can double as it did in this story or even more. Now, with money that is not living, it's just a, an object of exchange. If money can go to work and multiply, just think what can happen when we who are living take the abilities that God has given us and put them to work. 
what we do is multiplied beyond us to bless many more people. But if we work just for us, if we decide all that God has given us, all the talents he's given us is just for us, then our work is degraded. And over time, it becomes meaningless. Even if it's highly profitable, it becomes meaningless to us. The, the word investment comes from a Latin word that literally means to clothe. And it was a word that was used not for normal clothing, everyday clothing. It was a word that was used for official garments. They were called vestments. In fact, if this was a Catholic church or a Greek Orthodox church, uh, here's a picture of what I might look like standing up in front of you. I would be wearing this robe, which is called a vestment. A vestment literally is clothing that represents the position of authority and job that a person has. That's what a vestment is. Now, we don't have a lot of investments in our culture. There are a few churches that still do this, but not many. Uh, probably the, the most common use of vestments now are judges in courtrooms. We call them robes, but that's really what a vestment is. It's, it's a robe that indicates authority. You walk into a courtroom, and you have no problem figuring out who is the judge. Oh, there's the judge. The vestments, the clothing, points to the position, the assignment, the authority that that person has in that particular work of bringing justice. So that's what vestments and investment literally means. It means some authority, something that has been given to you that represents your responsibility. And the idea behind this is that God has vested each one of us. He has clothed us with different gifts, different talents. These gifts are from him. They are, as it says in the story here, his property entrusted to us. And if you look at someone and know them long enough, you can see the gifts. You can see the talents, almost like clothing. You can see their, their ability creatively, or maybe they're really good with numbers. Maybe they really do well in communication. Whatever it is, you can see the raw talents. If you're a parent, you can see these in your kids. And it's as if God clothed them with these abilities. But the purpose behind these vestments, these talents, these abilities, is not so that people can look at us and be amazed at us, but so that we might carry out the responsibilities that fit the clothing, that fit the talents. God clothed you and me with talent so that we might put those talents to work for him. Now, the closest thing we have to vestments now, apart from the, maybe a judge, is, is uniforms. There are some jobs that come with uniforms. If you're a police officer, you have a uniform that represents your authority, so no one questions whether you have the authority to provide public safety. If you're a firefighter, you have a uniform. If you're a doctor or nurse, you work in the medical field, you probably have some kind of uniform so people can identify who you are. It would be kind of amazing if all of us could wear a uniform that represents what we do for work and the contribution that it makes to our culture. You know, we don't question the contribution that a doctor makes to the culture. I've often thought it would be amazing to, to be a doctor and stand up in front of a mirror and put on your doctor vestments, and there would be a statement every time you saw yourself in the mirror. It's like, this is what I do, and this is a contribution to culture. But so many of the jobs we do now, we, we've lost sight of what benefit it has. I mean, just imagine if you were in sales and you had just like some amazing vestment for sales. 
And you could see that, and you could see the benefit. And I could walk up to you and say, oh, so are you one of the people that makes sure that goods and services get from point A to point B and facilitates that point B and facilitates that so that we can get so many needs met? Man, thank you so much for serving in the, the field of sales. No, salespeople just, well, they look like normal people. So we lose sight of the value and the contribution that every good job has and every talent is attached to. And the challenge we have is that we tend to get enamored with the robe, with the talent, and not with the responsibility that it represents. You know, one of the reasons that, as a culture, we don't do robes very much, we definitely don't do vestments, is because people wearing these robes throughout history have abused that power. They have misused their talents. They have used their work to benefit themselves. They have cashed in on the talents rather than invested the talents to be a blessing. Now, when we take our abilities and we go selfish, basically we unplug ourselves from the power of God to bless not only us, but to bless other people. So God vested us. He gave us talents. The question is whether or not we will invest our abilities and put it to work. One of the helpful things to do is to think, what do I do? What is my work? If you're retired, if you're working at home, you may not get paid for it, but you still work. What is it? What is my investment? And then ask the second question, how is that a blessing to others? How does this bless other people? Now you're getting to the nobility and the value of work. Reason number two is the happiness dynamic. We work to be happy. Now, most people think we work to earn money so that we can be happy, so we can buy the stuff that can make us happy or go the places that make us happy. But God intends work to be embedded not just in the product that it can purchase, but in the experience itself. The two servants who put the master's talents to work were given, as a result of their investments, both a tangible and an intangible benefit. The tangible benefit was what? They got more talents. Their capacity to bless grew. Here's what we read. Well done, good and faithful servant, the master said. You've been faithful with a few things. I gave you one talent or two talents or five talents. And you invested it. So now I'm going I'm to put you in charge of twice as much. I'll put you in charge of many things. You've probably heard the phrase, the reward for a job well done is what? More work. Now, we say that kind of as a way of you better not do a good job because you're just going to get more work. But God actually says that's really a good thing. Now, there's, there's limits to it. But this is what God intends for work over time. He intends for you to enter the workforce and invest and bless other people. And in turn, you're going to get blessed and you're gonna, your capacity is going to grow. You're going to gain in talent. You're going to hone that talent and maybe learn some other new talents. And your capacity to bless is just going to grow over time. So maybe in your 20s, an eight-hour workday produced X amount of blessing. Now in your 60s, it might produce four times that much or ten times that much. That's what God intends. That's the tangible benefit. But there is an intangible benefit too. And it was the expansion of their own personal happiness because of their work. Here's what it says. Come and share your master's happiness. 
That's an interesting response. You've worked hard. You've invested your talent. You've used it to bless more than just yourself. Now you get to share in my happiness. You get a piece of my happiness. That's interesting. Everyone wants to find happiness. The question, the big question in life is, where am I going to find happiness? When it comes to happiness, we have two location options. It's either located with God or it's located without God. Now, there are many options in the without God area, but those are the two basic categories. You find happiness with them or you find happiness without them. The with God option is a sharing option. It's not that God just gives you happiness and you go off all by yourself. No, it's, it's shared with him. That's what it says, which means that you have to do what God says before he shares his happiness with us. It's an arrangement. One of the places that God has buried a large amount of happiness, as Jesus says in this story, is in what we do for work. The problem is that you need to work before you receive the benefits. When did the happiness come? After the investment. The invitation to share in the master's happiness was after the work was done, not before it. So here's the challenge. The with God's source of happiness comes with a delay. If you want God's happiness, there's a delay to it. You can't get it instantly. The without God happiness is immediate. All the different ways you can get happiness without God, you can go and buy it and purchase it and experience it and fly there and, and, and do it. It's immediate. You can do this now. If you have the money, you can do it now. So guess which one of these two we prefer? Well, it's obvious. The happiness that we own and don't have to share with God. The happiness that we don't have to work for and we don't have to wait for. That's the happiness that we would prefer. But that happiness is far less happy <laughs> and sustained than the deep joy that God created us for. So we never get enough of the without God happiness. The joy we crave is reserved for the diligent worker who is willing to take the talents that God has given them and work, leverage those, invest those to be a blessing to other people. One of the great gifts that my parents taught me was this notion of delayed gratification. I didn't know the phrase growing up. It was never stated in our home. But we lived that life growing up. Delayed gratification means that the happiness comes after the work. You have to wait for the happiness. And they structured life that way. Part of it is because, well, my dad grew up on a farm, and that's just the way reality is. You have to wait until you're happy. The cows need to be milked. Stuff needs to happen. Then we can celebrate after that. So for us, our homework always came after playtime. If we wanted to play, the question was, did you have your homework done? If not, homework first, then you could play. My first 10-speed bike came after I spent a summer working in the fields, picking strawberries, and earning enough money for that bike. The last thing you ever wanted to do in my family was say that you were bored. Because if you said you were bored, what that meant automatically is you didn't have enough to do. You weren't working hard enough. So if you said you were bored, just get ready. There's more chores for you to do. So we learned, even if we were bored, we weren't bored because we didn't want to have to do more work. But they taught us that happiness comes out of work. It doesn't come just magically descending on us like a cloud. 
And it was a gift to me. I didn't always appreciate that gift, but I am a happier man today because of it. So if you're a parent with kids at home, teach them, not verbally. Don't use a whiteboard and write out delayed gratification. Build the kind of life where the happiness comes after the work is done. That's the way God has designed work to be, and the joy that he shares with us comes after. Now reason number three, and this is the quitting dynamic. This is why we don't work or why we quit. We work if it works, if it works for us. That's why we often decide not to work, and we, we quit either quietly or officially. And the reason that we tend to do this is because work is not a never-ending joy fest. Sin entered into the world, and work became much more challenging. It came with a lot of pain and a lot of toil. And what that means is now there's no guarantee that our work will improve this world or our lives any more than there's a guarantee that a financial investment is going to grow. Every financial investment you make comes with the disclaimer of the risk that's involved. And that's the way work is now, too. It is a risk in this broken world. What that means is we can work hard, and we can work well, and we cannot get what we deserve. Someone else can get the promotion. Someone else can get the credit. We get blamed for something we didn't do. We can work hard, and we can lose rather than gain. And sin added to all of this, and it tainted the, the, the joy that, you know, we, as we work together, sin just messes up relationships and causes the work to be much more challenging. And so as a result, many decide when it comes to work to do what the third servant did in this story. They bury their talent. They don't put it to work. Why? Well, let's read again what this servant said in his defense. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seeds. So I was afraid. And I went out. I hid your talent in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. What he's saying when he says you, you harvested where you have not sown, you gather where you have not scattered seed, what he's saying is there isn't a connection between the work and the harvest, between the results. A short way of saying this is life is unfair. And I've looked around and I've experienced enough to see that life isn't unfair. And so, God, because I'm not going to, there's no guarantee I'm going to get what I deserve out of work, I'm just, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to do this. Now, I learned this lesson early on in my work experience. One of my early jobs was I worked uh, in Safeway in a grocery store and I got eventually um, moved to the night stocking crew. So we would stock the shelves at night. And the result of that was there was one shift lead, but there was no real management. The manager wasn't there. The assistant manager wasn't there. So every once in a while, in the middle of the night, three or four in the morning, someone in the back would find a pallet that had some broken something in it, and they would start a food fight. And this would go on for like 10 or 15 minutes, and everyone would run to the back, and they'd, they'd grab the, you know, the best was the busted bags of flour because that, you know, was the most effective weapon you could use. And they would just do a food fight. And I never got involved in this because I knew we're not supposed to be doing this. We're supposed to be stocking shelves. 
And they would clean it up as best they can, but one morning the manager came in and the evidence of the food fight hadn't been cleaned up properly, so he found out about it. He asked the shift lead what was going on and he pointed straight to me and blamed me. And I defended myself. I said I hadn't done that, but I was the new young kid and I got blamed for it. I got in trouble. I didn't get fired, but I was in trouble. And I still remember that unjust rage on the inside. And you know the first thought that came to my mind? I'm going to quit. I'm out of here. This is ridiculous. That's what this service is saying. He, he worked or he saw someone work and not get what they deserved. And so he said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to quit. I was blamed for something I didn't do. So I wanted to quit. And that's, that's the logical thought we have. If work isn't working for us, why should we work? And let's be honest. For a large number, maybe even more than a majority of the people in the workforce. Work isn't working for them. It's not benefiting them in the way that it should. They're not getting what they deserve. The servant who buried his talent said his reason was fear. But here's one of the most shocking things. The master wasn't buying the excuse. I hear the excuse, and my heart goes out to this guy because I know he's got a point. But here's the master's reply. You wicked, lazy servant. What? Not just, I understand your concerns, now get back to work. But no, you wicked, lazy servant. Wow. And what's amazing to me is the master doesn't dispute the charge of unfairness. He doesn't say, no, that's not the way the world is. That is the way the world is. Because if God made everything fair, we wouldn't survive the day. So the world is unfair because of God's mercy. One day it will be fair. And at that point, Jesus will be the only hope we have. But for now, he doesn't dispute the charge of unfairness. It's true that in this broken world, we can work hard and not get what we deserve. So he didn't dispute the fear. What's the point? The point is this. The reason we are to work is not because it works, but because we are servants of God who have been called by him to do this work. And if you don't have that as your primary reason, you will encounter a reason not to work, and you will quit or you will quiet quit. He says, he calls him a wicked servant. A wicked servant says no to the master. That's what this person did. He calls him a lazy servant. A lazy servant says, no, I'm not going to do it. He had an excuse that we understand, but Jesus said the excuse is not bigger than the call to work. Just because work isn't working doesn't mean you don't have to work. Whenever we begin to question and struggle with why are we doing this, the why question always should point to the who question. Who am I doing this for? Whenever you're saying, so why am I knocking myself out to do this and I didn't get the promotion? Why is this unjust person getting the benefit, getting the credit for that sale when I'm the one that gave him the lead? Why, 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 why? Every one of those questions should say, okay, who am I doing this for? Who am I working for? And if it's no one higher than your boss or yourself, it's not enough to keep working. Colossians 3, 22 through 23 in the New Testament says it this way. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. No quiet quitting among you. Knock it off. As working 
for the Lord. That's who you work for. Not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. That's who we work for, which is why we work, which is why we can keep working even when work doesn't work for us. Did I use the word work too many times? That's why we work. And that sets up what we're going to talk about next week. That is what we do for work. This is going to be God's career counseling for you. And the key idea is that God is the one we work for. And if we are doing what we're doing, we need to do it out of sense that God has, this is God's assignment for us. And if we change jobs, it's because God is changing our assignment, not because we hate this job, but because God is changing our assignment. That's who we work for. So next week, God's career counseling for you. I think it'll be really helpful uh, whether you're beginning your career, you're at the midpoint of your career, you're struggling your career, or you've retired from your career. Because here's the news. You never retire from work until you see Jesus face to face. You may not have to work as much because you're tireder, but there's important work for you to do. So we'll talk about that next week. I hope you can join us. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we thank you that our life, every bit of it, has meaning, has purpose, and is a gift from you. And when work gets hard, you have a purpose in it. I pray that you would help us to be willing to wait for the joy that follows the work. I know we live in a consumer culture, which means we demand the product before anything else. We demand the results before we do the work. So I pray you'd help us to, to put in the work. I pray for those particularly who are really struggling with what they're doing with their days. God, I pray that through this series, as we look at your word, their understanding of what you want them to do would, would become clear and the nobility of it, and that they would begin to share in your happiness. You are our master. We thank you for the privilege of sharing in your happiness. Help us, we pray, and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.